afternoon and welcome to the 145th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will discuss lives cut short by the COVID-19 pandemic as part of the week of mourning. This episode was inspired by my COVID calls discussion couple weeks back with Kristen Urquiza and her marked by COVID work that she does with Christine Keeves and others. If you're not familiar with Kristen Urquiza, you can check her out. She's written, um, or no, she wrote an obituary of her father who died in the springtime in Arizona. And uh, she was also spoke at the Democratic National Convention. She was also at the first debate and she was uh, wrote a Washington Post editorial about that because she raised the question of whether or not she'd have been exposed by to COVID nineteen at that at that debate. So I just want to encourage everyone to check out "Marked by COVID" and Kristen Urquiza's work. It's really extraordinary and important at this time. I will be joined today by Esther Chernak, Bill Whitmire, Fiona Tulip, and Veronica Krzyzewski. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, October 9th, 2020, there are 1,064,471 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from Sorry, let me let me just give the statistics for the United States. Actually, the there are now seven million six hundred forty-three thousand two hundred fifty-six cases of COVID nineteen in the United States, and that's up from seven million five hundred eighty-six thousand nine hundred and four cases reported yesterday. There are now a total of two hundred thirteen thousand three hundred ninety deaths from COVID nineteen reported in the United States. That's up from two hundred twelve thousand four hundred sixty-six. Deaths reported yesterday. So ordinarily, for those who listen to COVID calls regularly, you'll know that this would be uh, the part of the program where I would read an obituary uh, or a news article related to those who've been suffering from COVID-19. But what we've decided to do today is to actually uh, give up the, the whole program for that. And I have guests today who uh, will be reading obituaries and speaking about uh, lives cut short, and we'll have a chance to, to hear from several of them today, and then I'll read a couple myself. If you would like to get a comment or a question in, you can do that. Just put it up into the YouTube live chat, or you can put it up on Twitter. Just be sure to uh, tag at US of Disaster, or you can email me directly if you'd like to, sgk23 at drexel.edu, and there is a a Twitter thread going around in which people can also add obituaries that they'd like to add as part of this discussion in support of this discussion today. So what I'd like to do now is uh, bring up the first contributor and 
Fiona Tula. Hi. Hi, thanks for making time to come on COVID Calls today. Thank you so much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and then I'll, we'll, we'll be very happy to have you read. Yeah, um, so I, I live in Brooklyn now, but I'm born, I was born and raised Texan. Most of my family lives in Texas and it's tough hearing the news coming from there um, every day. It's, um, you know, my family is mostly Mexican-American. I mean, I think we all are. <laughs> and we are from South Texas when South Texas is really struggling. And my mom lived in Dallas, Texas with my brother. I'm from Texas too. I was born in Dallas. Oh, wow. Almost all my family is, is there too. Yeah. And I share that same concern that you have throughout. Mm-hmm. Well, Fiona, I'm going to turn it over to you now and I'll come back with you in a few minutes and we can talk a little bit more. Of course. Thank you. So we had, we had talked earlier about what to read and, and I, I'd like to read the letter I wrote to the governor of Texas. Um, being that I, I'm still concerned about what's happening over there. And I, I feel like reopening bars and, and opening up right now without a plan just isn't isn't the, the best way to go. I'm worried about my family. I'm worried about my friends. And so I, I want to read a letter that I wrote to the governor of Texas, Governor Greg Abbott, soon after my mother died. Dear Governor Greg Abbott, I write to invite you to the burial of my mother, Isabel Odette Papa Demetrio. She was one of the 525 Dallas County residents who have died so far from COVID-19. Despite having a loving family and many friends, she died alone less than one week after testing positive for coronavirus. She had no known underlying health conditions. She was 64 years old. She died on July 4th, Independence Day. My mother, a respiratory therapist, told my brother on June 28th that she wasn't feeling well. The day before, she took note of her symptoms in a journal. Dizziness, lightheaded, chills, body aches, huge headache, shaking and drowsy, and a fever at 100.8 degrees, all at once at 10.30 p.m. She spent all of that day and the next looking for an appointment at a COVID-19 testing site. She finally found one and confirmed 30 minutes later, she was positive for coronavirus. On July 1st, she wrote, this was not a good day. I had a fever of 102 in the evening. I spent most of my day in bed. I rotate to drain the lungs, side to side and stomach to back. She could barely eat, she wrote. The next day, she wrote, July 2nd, 2020. Still not feeling well today. I have lots of coughing this morning. Feel weak. This was my mom's last entry. She waved off our family's suggestions to go to the hospital as she knew it was at capacity. Unfortunately, by the time my brother called the ambulance to help her, it was too late. When they reached the hospital, my mother had already lost her pulse at least three times. The doctors said it would be a miracle if she survived. My mother likely contracted the virus at the hospital where she worked during the period when your executive order number GA-18 forbade local governments from implementing their own safety measures, such as mandating the wearing of masks to protect the public and healthcare workers from the spread of COVID-19. There is no doubt that poor policy and terrible leadership were responsible for her death. 
Other states and countries have managed to slow their spread by implementing simple policy measures such as mask wearing. Texas has recently reported more than more than 10,000 new coronavirus cases a day, more than any European country had at the height of its outbreak. As hospital beds filled up across the state, you finally issued a statewide mask order on July 2nd, too late to help my mother. There will be far more deaths of Texans than there needed to be. Your inaction and active denial of the devastation from COVID-19 has made it clear that the people dying and the families they're leaving behind are just numbers to you. As of Monday, 4,020 people had died from COVID-19 in Texas, 4,020 lives that mattered. My mother mattered. I invite you to her burial to witness our family mourning this incredible woman who gave her life to save others. You will see that we are even unable to hug each other in our grief because my brother tested positive for COVID-19 the day my mother died. Due to the virus, we are limiting the number of guests at the service, mandating everyone wear a mask, keeping households six feet apart, and having hand sanitation on site. If I can manage a safe funeral, you can manage a safe state and prevent these unnecessary tragedies. Thank you for reading that. Yeah. Did you get a response? I did not get a response. Not a single response. He was asked about the letter a few times uh, with various media outlets and he went straight into his messaging points, never once acknowledged my mom and her bravery and never once acknowledged me and my frustration with him. I mean, I understand why, but I would have expected at least some kind of response. Your mother was a healthcare provider? She was a respiratory therapist. How long did she do that? She did that for more than 30 years. She was a bank teller when I was younger and she wanted to help people. So she switched her careers, went back to school and studied hard day and night and became a respiratory therapist. And we were all so proud of her, but it was hard because we didn't get to see her much. Um, I would have dance recitals and piano recitals and she had to miss them because she had to work the, the odd hours, the odd shifts because she was the newbie. Um, and, but she loved her job and I, I know she, she wished she could have been there for my events, but she loved her job and she loved helping others. When I got to speak with Kristen Urquiza, um, she did something similar to what mm -hmm. you have done, which is that she took the step of speaking out, not only about her father's life, but also to use that shed light on failed leadership. And she's sustained a lot of criticism for that. And of course, a lot of support and solidarity as well. What's it been like for you to speak out in this way? So it's, Kristen is the reason I'm doing it. When I, when my mom first died, I felt so helpless and, and lost. And I, I didn't know what to do. And I was angry. I was angry at the leadership, but I thought, who will listen to little me? You know, it, it, other other people have family members who are dying. You know, why why would anybody care what I have to say? And a friend of mine sent an article about Kristen and what she was doing, and I reached out to her immediately just to applaud her on her efforts and tell her I was proud of her. 
And I really wanted, I wanted Kristen to just be my voice. I thought, okay, she's good at this. She can be my voice. Um, but she asked me if I wanted to do, to do it too, write the letter and, and write the obituary. And I, I, I did, I said yes, <laughs> immediately. There was no question about it. I wanted to do it. And if I was going to have help, then that would be great. And since then, I think she's, she's really encouraged me and empowered me to speak out and speak up. And, and the more I do it, the more I, I feel like, you know, this is my mom working through me. You know, I, I'm doing this for my mom. I'm doing this to get justice for my mom. And I do get criticism. I, I've gotten some pretty awful um, messages on, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. You know, if I have an appearance um, on CNN, immediately I, I get hate messages um, telling me that I'm deplorable and Trump 2020 and, and just all these ridiculous things um, and mean. But unfortunately, I'm used to it now, you know, and, and I can brush it off and, and I, I'm on a mission. I, I have a reason. I have a why. And it's much bigger than any of the the hate or the the, the insults that I that I receive. What's the change that you're looking for? You have the moral authority to speak at this time and people are listening. What do you want to see change? I want to see our government take stronger action and protect us to put policies into place that will save this country. Unfortunately, right now we're not being protected in so many ways. I want a coordinated national data-driven response to this pandemic, one that follows science and not politics. And maybe that's too much to ask for this leadership. And if it is, I want a change in leadership. You mentioned your brother also um, had COVID-19. How's he doing now? He's doing much better, um, but it was hard because we were dealing with the loss of my mother. And on that same day, he tested positive. And he had so much anxiety because that morning he saw my mom, you know, he lives with my mom. So that morning my mom had called him from her room and he ran over to her room and she couldn't really speak. It looked like she had had a stroke and he had to go to bed that night knowing that he had the same virus and that his mom was gone. And we were very worried about him, for, about his mental state, about his physical state. He couldn't sleep. He, 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 he was now taking care of two dogs. My mom had a dog. Um, you know, they wanted to know where my mom was. They, they, they were sleeping in her room. They were running to his room. And he would say, you know, please text me in the morning. I'm worried. I'm not going to wake up. And he was so scared. And he's, he's gotten help for that. And he, he tested negative um, 14 days later. And so he, he's doing better, but we, we make it a point to stay in touch often. And we have Sunday night dinners over um, FaceTime to, to make sure that we just see each other and, and can talk with each other. I was going to ask you about that because so many of the stories we've heard about COVID-19, um, people are coping with loss at a distance. And and sounds like you are too, if you're in New York and your family is is in Texas. So one way you deal with that is a Sunday FaceTime dinner. Yep. Sunday FaceTime dinners. And, and it's quite, it's lovely. You know, I, I never did that with my, my brother or my mom. I wish I did. Cause it's so easy, you know, just make sure you're having dinner at the same time and, and call each other and just chat while you eat, you know, and then say goodbye. And it's, it's really lovely. And, um, 
you know, when the pandemic started, I started to call my dad every single day so he could get to know my daughter, Lua. And I didn't do that with my mom, one, because she had a pretty busy schedule, um, but two, because I wasn't worried about her. I was worried about my dad living in South Texas. He had underlying health conditions. He is obese. He, he, I didn't feel like he'd be strong enough with, with this virus, but I knew my mom would be. So anytime I called my mom, you know, I was like, oh, she's fine, but I need to call my dad every day just in case. And um, yeah, I, I wish I would have called her more. Well, Fiona, thank you so much for joining our discussion, the, the memorial episode today and um, people who want to show solidarity for what you're doing. How would you suggest they can do that? Yeah, I, I would suggest going to the Marked by COVID website. There are various ways to help. You can share your story, which is so important right now. It's so important to put faces to the numbers. As the numbers start to increase, they just become nameless numbers. And we can't forget these lives. They are so important to all of us. And we should really be coming together and uniting. So markedbycovid.com, you can share your story. You can participate in um, the next couple of days of the week of mourning, it ends on the 11th, but we do have virtual vigils at 12 p.m. Eastern. There are also local vigils that, that may be happening in your area. If you just um, enter your zip code, you'll be able to find something that's happening nearby. And there's also an opportunity to donate. We do need support um, when it comes to sponsoring honest obituaries. They are expensive. And I, I, I was surprised by that when I submitted my mom's obituary. They are very expensive. And, and this is a this is a loss that is very unexpected. And it's, you know, my husband and I lost our jobs. So paying for everything was tough. And so we want to support people who, you know, want help and want to uplift their their loved one's story and who want to have an obituary. That shouldn't be a choice. Um, so yeah, visit the site. And, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and we're speaking up and we're speaking out and we'd love to hear from you. Great. Thank you so much for that. And everybody be sure to check out Marked by COVID. And that's a really great point you made about the obituaries are not free. No. Uh, so to bring that to public attention, I mean, they have to be researched and written. Sometimes they're written by the family. Sometimes they're written by newspaper staffs. There's resources behind that. So, well, I wish you well. I'm sorry for your loss. And I really thank you for your contribution today. Thank you so much. We're going to uh, turn now to another guest uh, and not a stranger to COVID calls, Esther Chernat. Great to see you. Happy to be here. For once, I'm not going to ask you to explain all of what's happening with public health in America to me with 15 minutes, um, but I'm gonna turn it over to you to also contribute to our memorial discussion today. So with that, Esther, I will uh, turn it over. Thank you. Um, I actually, I wanna start by sharing condolences with Fiona. What an amazingly powerful letter and I'm so sorry for your loss. And I just, you know, to be a respiratory therapist, that is truly on the, the most front of the front lines in the context of a pandemic of uh, respiratory infection. Um, it sounds like your mother was an extraordinary person. I'm really sorry for your loss. So I'm um, Scott's colleague at Drexel University. I'm an associate professor at the College of Medicine and also the School of Public Health. And I uh, do research in public health emergency preparedness. And I am by training an infectious disease physician. 
And the obituary that I selected is uh, that of um, Dr. Rebecca Shadowin, who is another infectious disease physician. And I'll read it and then uh, happy to discuss it with, with Scott in terms of why I chose it. Um, so this is uh, Dr. Shadowin's obituary, I think in the New York Times. Um, Dr. Rebecca Shadowin, expert in infectious diseases, dies at age 62. Dr. Shadowin, ill with the coronavirus, continued to attend meetings from her hospital bed. She eventually died of COVID-19. Things were relatively calm at the medical center at Bowling Green in mid-March, around the time the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic, and Governor Andy Bashir of Kentucky announced the first COVID death in his state. But Dr. Rebecca Shadowin, a specialist in infectious diseases and healthcare epidemiology at the hospital, was already on the case. On March 13, she posted a pro-mask message on Facebook. If you could save the life of another person without harming your own, would you? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention made a formal recommendation about mask wearing on April 3rd, and the subject quickly became a partisan issue. Dennis Cheney, a medical center colleague, recalled in an interview on it with NBC that Dr. Shadowin was always reminding others, look folks, this isn't politics, it's science. Dr. Shadowin died of COVID at the medical center on September 11, the hospital said. She was 62 and had been ill for four months. She had continued to attend meetings of the Bowling Green Warren County Coronavirus Work Group from her hospital bed. Dr. Shadowin had been on the hospital staff for 31 years and had specialized earlier in treating people with HIV AIDS and Lyme disease. By the time of her diagnosis in May, there were at least 750 confirmed cases of coronavirus in Warren County, which includes Bowling Green, and she was running COVID treatment trials. But she and her family said they felt certain she had not been infected at work where precautionary measures were strict. The likeliest source was a home health worker who was infected but didn't know it, who was tending to her mother-in-law and who was the first family member to become ill. Dr. Shadowin's husband, Dr. David Shadowin, a retired internal medicine specialist and endocrinologist, and their daughter, Catherine, also contracted the virus and experienced mild symptoms. The Shadowin son, Jesse, did not. All three survived her. Rebecca Dawn Hunt was born in Louisville on April 4th, 1958, the daughter of Edwin Audley Hunt and Audrey Jane Burrow Hunt. She met David Shadowin when both were students at Western Kentucky University in Bowling Green. They married in 1981, and after their first year at the University of Louisville School of Medicine, Rebecca Shadowin did her residency at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and further study at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. When Anderson Cooper interviewed the family on his CNN podcast, which was released on September 21st, he voiced his admiration for Dr. Shadowin's assistance to others despite putting herself at serious risk. She was always like that, Catherine Shadowin said. So I, you know, I chose this for a variety of reasons. Obviously, she's an infectious disease physician, and I have great uh, respect for her career. Uh, we trained. I did not know her personally. Um, she um, finished her training a couple of years before me, so she was a couple of years older than I was. But you know, she began her career. Um, and uh, the bookends of her career were two major pandemics. She started out um, as an infectious disease specialist doing HIV-AIDS care and ended her career um, responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, she also, and she had, a, I think, a really remarkable academic career. She was a major contributor, was a fellow of SHEA, the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, also a fellow of the American College of Physicians. She's widely published on healthcare infections. Um, and um, also trained and worked and ended up practicing medicine in the state where she grew up. 
and contributed to her local community that way. And I just think I uh, wanted to honor her life. I think that, you know, most people don't know what infectious disease docs do um, outside of the COVID-19 pandemic. And she led an extraordinary life and was a, a, an incredible infectious disease professional. Um, so I thought it would be important to, to, to profile her in this way. Thank you so much for sharing that and, and reading that, Esther. And I, what you were just saying is so profound. I mean, that so she began her career at the time in which somebody interested in infectious disease and public health would be working on HIV/AIDS. And that, I mean, isn't that also a bit of your career, right? Yeah. She. I mean, I did my fellowship in infectious diseases uh, between 1989 and 1991. It was the very beginning of the HIV epidemic in this country, or sort of the beginning. Um, she's a couple years older than me, so my sense is she probably, you know, finished a few years earlier. But yeah, her first probably major infectious disease responsibilities were in responding to the HIV AIDS pandemic. And the obituary highlights that much of her clinical care at that time was HIV AIDS. Um, and um, that's how many of us who joined the profession in the late 80s, early 90s, many of us joined it so that we could be a part of that pandemic response. Um, I'm still doing it, many of us are still doing it. Um, but of course, now uh, the world is focused on a very different type of pandemic. Is it something that when you train for this kind of work, how is death discussed? I mean, how how are people prepared to think about themselves as as she did and as you have done, throwing yourself sort of in the breach in the middle of a, of a pandemic? So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the HIV pandemic has changed dramatically in, in the last 30 years, right? And, you know, I think those of us who started working in the, in the clinical field of HIV AIDS care in the early 90s um, have had a very different experience than we do now taking care of patients. I mean, the you know, for the, for, most, for the most part in the late 80s, early 90s, we had very little to offer patients. Um, and much of clinical care at that time was really managing end-stage immune suppression, end-stage AIDS. And, 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 you know, a lot of it was palliative care. I mean, we would, you know, try to extend life, but, you know, at that time really didn't have much effective pharmacotherapy to offer folks. And, you know, obviously in 1995 and 1996, we started to have the arrival of highly active antiretroviral therapy. And honestly, in, in the decades after that, the care of HIV AIDS has been completely transformed. And it is not a death sentence. People HIV, if they take their medications, have a lifespan and life expectancy that is virtually as long as someone who doesn't have HIV infection is who take their medicines, et cetera. So the, it's been a dramatic change in, in uh, the paradigm um, and a very, a, I mean, really a gratifying disease to, to manage because you, you have so much to offer people. Um, um, so it's very, very different. Um, uh, you know, I think in terms of COVID, you know, um, it's a, COVID's a very different pandemic. We're still learning so much about how to manage people. Um, you know, we, 
we, you know, we don't have effective therapy yet, really. You know, we have some bright lights, maybe steroids, maybe dexamethasone is a bright light, maybe monoclonal antibodies are a bright light, but uh, we're still in the early stages of really understanding how to make people better. And we're still very much in the, in the game of supportive care. Um, but I, I, you're, you're, you're quite right that like the HIV epidemic, certainly if you do hospital-based infectious disease care, you're going to be taking care of really sick people, 20% of whom may go on to die. And um, that's a part of that's a part of the clinical care you provide um, is you know realize is, is doing what you can to to prevent that outcome um, and dealing and addressing it when you can't um, and uh, you know some of that's you know medicine you know when you go into the field of medicine. Yeah. Uh, you know, for the, you know, depending on the field you choose, I mean, there aren't too many fields where you can avoid bad outcomes. There are certainly fields where that's more likely than others. Um, but what I've learned is that, you know, I do what I can when I see something that's reversible, that I can manage, that I can treat. But I also, some of what's really key as a medical, as a medical professional is recognizing when you can't, when you've hit the end of the road, um, and then working with families to make sure that have have a, the kind of death that they would want to have, um, a comfortable death, a painless death, a death that involves um, choices, um, um, and 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 ideal ideally, um, you know, care. You know, I think I think as a profession, we're so slow sometimes in recognizing when people have regressed beyond a point where we can reverse their illness. And um, I think we need to be much more aggressive in terms of recognizing. When, when we reach the end of the road and then work aggressively with families, in some ways more aggressively, to take advantage of the tremendous resources that we now have in the last, really the last decade or so, in terms of palliative care and hospice care and the things that we can offer families so that people can have painless deaths and deaths that, um, that are that are not violent, you know, um, you know, um, codes that end up in, in the intensive care unit, but deaths that are that are ideally pain-free in the comfort of people's homes, surrounded by loved ones. One of the things about the obituary you read, Dr. Shadowin, and this also came up in the in what Fiona read with her mother, is not just the the loss of the life, um, which is important in every case, and feels unjust at this time uh, in many instances, but also like we need her right now. Mm -hmm. Like it's like very much, <laughs> I, I mean, and I worry about that, you know, I mean, I think we, you and I talked about this back in, in March and April about the potential, you know, what we were seeing on the East coast, certainly in April and what they've seen in other parts of the country over the summer and now that essential workers that you could reach a breaking point, right? In which the medical sort of support system in this country can be overtaxed a bit. Yeah. I worry about that. I mean, I wonder, you know, when you're reading her story, it, it doesn't stand alone, I guess is what I'm saying. It, it how, we can't lose many Dr. Shadowins before it becomes really dangerous for all of us, right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the reasons I actually wanted to read her obituary is because certainly when I started training, you know, the population of infectious disease docs is not large. Um, you know, infectious disease docs are a small profession. There aren't a lot of people um, begging and, and, you know, who want to be infectious disease docs, although it's the best specialty um, and most interesting specialty, there, you know, and, um, but there aren't many of us. 
And uh, yeah, we need her now. But we, we also need Fiona's mother now. We need, yeah. there's a lot of people in different roles that are really critical right now. And, you know, thinking about Dr. Shadowin and listening to Fiona's story, you know, to me, the, the thing that is, that it makes me so angry is that, you know, Fiona's mother didn't, didn't want to go to the hospital because she knew how overburdened it was. That's crazy. It's crazy that in this country, all the money we spend on healthcare, um, this person who was an insider in healthcare knew that the healthcare system was burdened and didn't want to add to that burden, probably um, didn't, didn't feel comfortable going into that environment. We have healthcare workers using and reusing and conserving personal protective equipment in ways that should not be should not be sanctioned and endorsed and encouraged, but we have no choice because we have personal protective equipment limits and we haven't addressed that. And the biggest concern I think we all have as we start to see cases surge now in you know, middle, middle October is, are we gonna get to a point where healthcare facilities are full again in the way that in many parts of the country they were, in many parts of the world they were in March and April. And we absolutely saw the quality of care deteriorate when, when you know, hospital beds are full. I think this week, uh, the state of Wisconsin opened up a field hospital. Um, here we are, October, six months into this, and we're, we still haven't figured this out, and we still haven't built the kind of capacity that we really need to build to ensure that we can respond as, to this pandemic in this country. So, um, yeah, I, I agree. We need her now. <laughs> I have Along a friend. Way I, love, I love how you're... You, it's extraordinary to me that you're you're describing this pretty dire picture, but you're also recruiting at the same time. Always recruit. I'm think, shameless. Well, I'm shameless. No, I think it's it's much needed, and I think there will be there are young people who are hearing this story and are thinking that's for me. That's the fight. Um, I have a friend who's a very highly placed infectious disease physician in a state government, and I'm not going to mention any more than that, but. Um, this person has uh, also seen, and I imagine, um, uh, Doctor um, uh, Doctor also probably experienced this as well. Um, the political dimension of this and the intense pressure that was not expected that a public health official would all of a sudden find themselves also as a lightning rod and a a recipient of personal attack. And they don't train you for that in medical school, do they? No, no. I mean. You know, some of that is is results from being in the unique position of being a, but that is absolutely a phenomenon that um, is worth noting in this pandemic. The targeting of public health officials who are trying to lead us through this pandemic, and there's been a number of highly placed visit, uh, physicians, public health officials, le public health leaders, who have been the target of incredible invective, um, and they have not been protected necessarily by the elected officials in those states and, and, and counties and cities. And it's actually been, I think, a huge challenge. Um, we saw, we've seen a number of very high profile resignations. Um, you know, not a lot of information, but these are people in many cases who were, who were the, the target of a lot of criticism and not fully supported. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's something worth studying and thinking about and understanding. But I think, you, you know, when you, when you create, you know, you sort of combine being a public official with being a, a medical expert. Um, we're in a time where both of those things put you into a vulnerable, a vulnerable place when it comes to public criticism. And, and that's a shame. I think ultimately is not going to serve us well as we battle this pandemic.
Well, Esther, thank you for reading and talking and for everything you do. Uh, and um, look forward to seeing you again to talk about public health. So thanks for spending your time today on this. My pleasure, thank you. Okay. I'm going to read an obituary now from a source I have relied on quite frequently, actually, uh, over the last few months, the Kaiser Health News Lost on the Frontline series. They have obituaries of essential workers, medical care providers uh, from across the country and um, all the major newspapers. I mean, it's been such an extraordinary time for obituary writing, which usually um, is something that most people pay a little bit of attention to maybe uh, when somebody famous dies. In wartime, of course, obituaries become a crucial way that people understand the nature of loss. And I don't always like the war metaphor for what we're going through now, because we've had pandemics before too. But um, the ways that these obituaries are being written, the care and love that's being put into them is important. And um, so I want to you know, shout out to the Washington Post and New York Times, but also many small local newspapers. And if you listen to previous COVID calls, I read an obituary at the beginning of every episode and I try to read them from around the world as best I can. I'm really astounded by what journalists are accomplishing right now in terms of writing these. Many of them are also written by family members. Let me read this one. Ghanaian nurse made a deep impact across the planet, Bernard Atta, who was age 61. This is in the Kaiser health news. He was a registered nurse at the Correctional Recep Reception Center in Orient, Ohio, and he died on May 17, 2020. In December 2019, Kojo Ata returned to his father's hometown in Ofinso, Ghana. Kojo arrived alone, but everybody knew his father, Bernard Ata. As a nurse in Ohio's prison system, Bernard worked overtime so he could afford to ship drums of clothes across the Atlantic to the Takarati port. Inside were sneakers, sandals, and Ralph Lauren polos for cousins, always with stripes, Kojo said, so the boys knew they were special. The regard for his father made Kojo realize there are countless unsung heroes making a deep impact across the planet. In New York last summer, the two visited the United Nations to pay respects to a portrait of their hero, Kofi Annan, a former UN Secretary General from Ghana. They cried. Look at this man and look at us, Bernard told his son. We came from nothing, but we are here. We're making it. As COVID-19 ravaged Ohio, Kojo urged his father to leave work. Worried about inadequate protective gear, Bernard refused, citing his duty. Kojo said PPE was and continues to be available to staff, prison spokesperson said. Bernard showed symptoms and tested positive for COVID-19, but he remained home fearing the hospital bills. Awakened by a flurry of WhatsApp messages, Kojo learned his father died, leaving behind his wife, three other children and grandchildren. He never could live for himself, Kojo said, but he's finally on vacation in eternal paradise. That was written by Eli Kahan and published June 30th. to bring on our next presenter today, Bill Whitmire. Hi, Bill. Hi, Scott. How Thanks are for, you? I'm doing okay and, and yeah. want to thank you for your time today. And maybe could you tell us a little bit about yourself before you read? 
Sure thing. So I'm I'm actually a, a Texan myself. I was born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> Which high school did you go to, Bill? Pascal High School. Oh, I went to Arlington Martin. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Small yeah. Small world. I didn't know this was going to be the Texan theme. <laughs> I didn't today either. With respect to Esther, maybe she she uh, maybe she has Texan family we don't know about. That, know. That's we right. Her, we make her an honorary Texan today, I think. All right. There we go. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, but, Bill. Uh, well, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you read, and I'll come back in a minute. Great. Thank you. Um, well, first, I want to thank uh, Fiona, uh, who I send my condolences out to again uh, for your mom and Really thank uh, thank you and your mom for her service and everything that she has done. She did over the years. And Esther, thank you for uh, your service and also for um, uh, reading the obituary as well that you read. Uh, the the uh, uh, what I'm reading today, um, I have really been thinking a lot about people that are have been marginalized uh, by the pandemic and actually during our, our week of mourning for marked by COVID that uh, I'm also a part of. Uh, today, we had our morning vigil and our focus was people that tend to be marginalized um, in the pandemic, people of color, uh, people in impoverished communities and also the elderly. And uh, I've been in touch with uh, someone um, and got to know her mom, and her mom's name was uh, Ann Pat Kruger, and her granddaughter, Susan, Susan Slade, gave me permission to read um, Mrs. Kruger's obituary today, and then I'll say a couple things after. Ann Pat Kruger, age 98, went to her heavenly home August 11th, 2020. She lived a long, wonderful life. Her family and friends were so blessed to have her in their lives and will treasure wonderful memories. She was born to Alex and Anna Hamatov on, on March 15, 1922. She grew up in Bell, California, graduating from Bell High School. In 1942, she married Paul Kotner and they had a daughter. Pam and son Alan. In 1948, she married Leonard Kruger and they had a son Leonard. Their Air Force family traveled to Okinawa, Japan, Cheyenne, Cheyenne Wyoming, Grand Forks, North Dakota, uh, Albany, Georgia, and settled after retirement in Moreno and the Moreno Valley, uh, California, in their dream home. Ann and Lynn were active in the Shepherd of the Valley Lutheran Church for over 50 years. They enjoyed many years of RV travel. After Lynn's passing in 1987, Ann embraced a new chapter of her life filled with outings, friends, golfing, bowling, church volunteerism, and cooking. Family favorites, peanut brittle and, and uh, banana bread. Her great joy was to host large gatherings. Family and friends fondly recall her gracious spirit and seemingly effortless ability to bring people together to laugh, celebrate, share old stories, and make new memories. In her later years, Anne moved to Kingman, Arizona to be with her daughter, Pam, and her husband, uh, Larry, Jerry Fink. 
The good times continued with travel, golfing, and fellowship at St. John's United Methodist Church. Anne was, Anne was preceded in death by her husband, sisters, brothers, uh, son Alan Kruger, and son-in-law Jerry Fink. She is survived by daughter Pam Fink, son Leonard Kruger, grandchildren Deborah, Susan, and Christine, her husband Alan, uh, Jennifer, Jason, Janelle, and her great-grandchildren Ireland and Scarlett, and her sisters Vera and Esther. Anne will later be laid to rest with her husband at the Riverside National Cemetery in California. Anne died of COVID-19. She passed at Kingman Christian Assisted Care in Kingman, Arizona. She will be missed. Please care for others by wearing a mask and social distance until this pandemic is over. We miss you. Thanks for reading that, Bill. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, so, you know, I, I got to know Susan. Susan reached out to our organization here in uh, uh, Arizona, and we had some conversations about her grandma, and got to, I got, got to know a little bit about her grandmother, and, and it really reminded me of, um, her, her grandmother really reminded me of my grandmother and the, all the things she liked to do and the fam big family gatherings and uh, things of those nature and being very involved in the church and community and very impactful with people. And um, I could, and Kingman is a, is a very knit, close knit community. And uh, so I could just see how she had been a, a very impactful person uh, there as well. And, uh, so it just really had an impact on me. And um, uh, her goal, uh, Susan uh, shared with me a little bit before the call today, she sent me a text and said, you know, uh, uh, my grandma's goal was, was to turn 100. And, uh, you know, COVID took that away. And, uh, and kind of from getting to know Pat through the readings and uh, talking to Susan, I think she may have been able to live as long as my grandmother who lived until she was 110. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but, it, but anyway, it was, uh, so yeah, it was, uh, uh, I thought given um, kind of where my thoughts were and kind of the theme for the day on our morning vigil this morning and, and uh, kind of some of the things that have gone on in Arizona with, with some of the elderly, it was uh, very appropriate uh, for today. So you're participating in a in a group that's uh, having a vigil every day. So so marked by COVID for the, uh, for, the for the week of the morning, week. we've been having a vigil every morning, a virtual vigil every morning, mm -hmm. and uh, so this that was the topic of this morning's vigil. I see. Yeah, and we actually had a uh, a live uh, event uh, yesterday for families that uh, various you know families came to. It was about a dozen people showed up. 
I'm really glad that you that you read that and also that you shared that it it made you think of your own grandmother. It, you know, it's been for me at least so many uh, people who who have um, who want to show solidarity and and sympathy. Um, it's a little sometimes a little awkward to know how to act in a time like this. I'd speak for myself, you know that. It, clearly, it's a family member who's who's suffering, and you want to reach out, and then you look around and it's everywhere. But it sounds like you've really kind of connected with this this family, and it's something you you know you really connected with them. And I mean, to feel comfortable that you wanted to read this is really I think really important and powerful. You're sort of kind of roped in with that family kind of community of loss. I think. It it is and and you know when I when I first started reaching out to um, Arizona families, um, ba basically what happened was Kristen asked a few of us to start reaching out to families in in our states that where we where we're from um, because of the overwhelming requests we were getting the people reaching out to us uh, for support and so I started making some phone calls and. Um, the more people I talked to, the more people I could just connect with their stories because this affects all of us. We're all connected. Uh, it's, it's massive. And we really need to support each other and be there for each other uh, through this thing. The ways that it's even in these fractured times, I've been taken aback by the way that um, people have talked about older folks. Uh, and I so what you just said that, you know, her ambition was to make it to 100. Uh, that's, you know, what a great ambition. That's something we should all aspire <laughs> to do. Yeah. Imagine 98 years of, of, you know, the love and care and community and everything that goes into that. It's been disheartening to me to hear some elected officials dismiss older folks. Oh, it, it has, to, it has to me too. And, um, yeah. And, and to hear some, some of the cruel things said that, um, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't remember which politician said it, but there was a pile of, a, a high level politician in state government that said, Oh, people over 65 should just be willing to sacrifice themselves. So people could go back to work. I'm paraphrasing. But I think that's just outrageous, <laughs> you know. I mean, but those are the types of comments. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about. Uh, I don't know if you've had this experience, but uh, I've mentioned this before on COVID calls. I was very close with my grandparents. Uh, grew up with them, and and uh, when the pandemic first started, I had the strangest experience. That even though they've been dead for almost twenty years, I uh, one day I caught myself worrying about them. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that resonates at all with you, but I, I had this very strong feeling. And what it made me realize is that bond of love was so strong that it was somehow I was feeling it still because they would have been, you know, like all older folks that had been a part of that vulnerable population at this at this time. And I kind of snapped out of it. I thought, what a strange, what a strange thing to experience. But 
but again, it's it connects me to the obituary that you've just read. I feel connected to that story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, when when uh, uh, so I I know so it's interesting you bring it up because I I know Fiona uh, from Mark by COVID, and um, so I'm very familiar with um, her mom's you know um, uh, story and Fiona's story, but I'm listening to it again. And it's like, every time I listen to the story, something else pops up, but I couldn't help but thinking, you know, my, my father, um, uh, passed away about six years ago. He was 81. Uh, but he was taken, he was taken care of in the hospital for a couple of weeks by respiratory, respiratory therapists were key to his comfort in the hospital. And I'm just like, I can't imagine. I just, I think about that. I think about what if that had happened now? Yeah. Well, Bill, um, thanks for joining us today and, and reading, sharing that life. And um, also to what you've been doing with Mark by COVID. And I'm just going to put that website back up. So that sure, can absolutely. find that, participate. And I uh, hope we get a chance to speak again on a future COVID calls. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to um, finish up today and I'm going to read one more. We're going to do another one of these sessions um, in November. And I hope that people can participate. If you would like to participate, reading an obituary, uh, either of a loved one or in solidarity with a family that you're connected with or even somebody you don't don't know, that's fine. Please be in touch with me. You can find me on Twitter at US of Disaster, or you can find COVID calls anywhere you get podcasts or on YouTube or Periscope, or you can email me directly, sgk23 at drexel.edu. I'm gonna read now an obituary of someone I didn't know personally, but felt like I did. John Prine, who chronicled the human condition in song, dies at 73. This was written by William Grimes and published in the New York Times, April 7th. John Prine, the raspy voiced country folk singer whose ingenious lyrics to songs by turns poignant, angry, and comic made him a favorite of Bob Dylan, Chris Christopherson, and others died on Tuesday, this was back in April, he was 73. The cause was complications of the coronavirus, his family said. Mr. Prine underwent cancer surgery in 1998 to remove a tumor in his neck identified as squamous cell cancer, which had damaged his vocal cords. In 2013, he had part of one lung removed to treat lung cancer. He had been hospitalized since late March. Mr. Prine was a relative unknown in 1970 when Mr. Christofferson heard him play one night at a Chicago club called the Earl of Old Town, dragged there by the singer-songwriter Steve Goodman. Mr. Christofferson was performing in Chicago at the time at the Quiet Night. Mr. Prine treated him to a brief after-hours performance of material that Mr. Christofferson later wrote was unlike anything I'd heard before. A few weeks later, when Mr. Prine was in New York, Mr. Christofferson invited him on stage at the Bitter End in Greenwich Village, where he was appearing with Carly Simon and introduced him to the audience. No way somebody this young can be writing so heavy, he said. John Prine is so good, we may have to break his thumbs. The record executive, Jerry Wexler, 
who was in the audience, signed Mr. Prine to a contract with Atlantic Records the next day. Music writers at the time were eager to crown a successor to Bob Dylan, and Mr. Prine, with his nasal, sandpapery voice and literate way with a song, came ready to order. His debut album, called simply John Prine and released in 1971, included songs that became his signatures. Some gained wider fame after being recorded by other artists. They included Sam Stone, about a drug-addicted war veteran, with the unforgettable refrain, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. Hello in there, a heart-rending evocation of old age and loneliness, and Angel from Montgomery, the hard luck lament of a middle-aged woman dreaming about a better life, later made famous by Bonnie Raitt. He's a true folk singer in the best folk tradition, cutting right to the heart of things, as pure and simple as rain, this Raitt told Rolling Stone in 1992. Mr. Dillon, listing his favorite songwriters in a 2009 interview, put Mr. Prine front and center. Prine's stuff is pure Proustian existentialism, he said, Midwestern mind trips to the nth degree, and he writes beautiful songs. John Prine was born on October 10, 1946, in Maywood, Illinois, a working-class suburb of Chicago, to William and Verna Ham Prine. His father, a tool and dye maker at the American Can Company, and his mother had moved from the coal town of Paradise, Kentucky, in the 1930s. Mr. Prine later wrote a ruefully bitter song titled Paradise, in which he sang, The coal company came with the world's largest shovel, and they tortured the timber and stripped all the land. Well, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken, and they wrote it all down as the progress of man. John grew up in a country music-loving family. He learned guitar as a young teenager from his grandfather and brother and began writing songs. After graduating from high school, he worked for the post office for two years before being drafted into the, drafted into the Army, which sent him to West Germany in charge of the motor pool at his base. After being discharged, he resumed his mail route in and around his hometown, composing songs in his head. I always likened the mail route to a library with no books, he wrote on his website. I passed the time each day making up these little ditties. Reluctantly, he took the stage for the first time at an open mic night at a small Chicago club called the Fifth Peg, where his performance met with profound silence from the audience. They just sat there, Mr. Prine later wrote. They didn't even applaud. They just looked at me. Then the clapping began. It was like I found out all of a sudden that I could communicate deep feelings and emotions, he wrote, and to find that out all at once was amazing. Not long after, Roger Ebert, the film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times, wandered into the club while Mr. Prine was performing. He liked what he heard and wrote Mr. Prine's first review under the headline, Singing Mailman Who Delivers a Powerful Message in a Few Words. He appears on stage with such modesty he almost seems to be backing into the spotlight, Mr. Ebert wrote. He sings rather quietly, and his guitar work is good, but he doesn't show off. He starts slow, but after a song or two, even the drunks in the room begin to listen to his lyrics, and then he has you. Mr. Prine had a particular gift for offbeat humor reflected in songs like Jesus, The Missing Years, Some Humans Ain't Human, Sabu Visits the Twin Cities Alone, and the anti-war screed, Your Flag Decal Won't Get You Into Heaven Anymore. I guess what I always found funny was the human condition, he told the British newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, in 2013. There is a certain comedy and pathos to trouble and accidents. In 2017, Mr. Prine published John Prine Beyond Words, a collection of lyrics, guitar chords, commentary, and photographs from his own archive. In 2019, he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and his album Tree of Forgiveness was nominated for a Grammy for Best Americana Album. 
In December, he was chosen to receive a 2020 Grammy for Lifetime Achievement. As a songwriter, Mr. Prine was prolific and quick. In the early days, he would sometimes dash off a song while driving to a club. Sometimes the best ones come together at the exact same time, and it takes about as long to write it as it does to sing it, he told the poet Ted Couser in an interview at the Library of Congress in 2005. They come along like a dream or something, and you just got to hurry up and respond to it, because if you mess around, the song is liable to pass you by. I'm just going to read a lyric that matters to me, something that John Prine wrote. Make me an angel that flies from Montgomery. Make me a poster of an old rodeo. Just give me one thing that I can hold on to. To believe in this living is just a hard way to go. I spoke with my friend uh, Russ Farr when Prine died um, about what it meant to us. And Russ, who's better with words than I am, said sometimes somebody comes along who's just a portal to the universe. And I've felt that with Prine and the other artists who died at this time. It just feels, of course, unjust for anyone to die of COVID-19, but we need essential workers and caregivers. We really need artists right now. People who can help us understand what we're going through, reflect on it, give it to us, back to us in a way that uh, makes life easier. These people don't need to be dying from this virus and certainly not like this. Let's not forget them. I want to thank Bill Whitmire and Esther Chernak and Fiona Tulip for coming on today for this memorial episode of COVID Calls. And we'll do another one of these in November. And just to bring Fiona and Bill back one more time, Esther had to go, but thank you both again for what you're doing and for your time today. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Everybody, you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. On Monday, we'll be talking about COVID-19 and small business. So be sure to check us out on Monday. Have a good weekend. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you Monday, 5 o'clock.